Dear Lord God, we thank you for your faithful throughout salvation history, faithful men and women who called upon you in times of distress. And even so, Lord, as we look to one such person, as we look and learn from Hannah's story, would you, Lord God, meet us, each one of us, in the midst of our own personal distresses, whatever they may be, um, the things that we are facing today and this week, Lord, would you illuminate them with the light of your love and the light of your presence and your faithfulness on our behalf. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is part three of six. And this is really part three of three because I'm looking at Bible portraits and I thought I'd look at women in the Bible. Very often, if you've ever done a Bible study on women in the Bible, very often what it ends up being, first of all, women in the Bible are often put forward only as um, examples for other women to learn from and not for men to look at and learn from as well. And that's not necessarily a helpful thing because there's so much to be learned from both the men and women in Scripture um, as they are within God's purposes, as they're outside of God's purposes and he draws them in. Um, and so that's, that's why I'm so glad to see some men in this class as well. So number one, thank you for being here and proving my point. <laughs> number two, um, very often when women are put forward from Scripture for other women, we're told look at her and be like her and that's not really a very helpful message is it be like so and so in the way that they're like this and um, one of the helpful things to remember is that these women are not perfect the women in scripture are far from perfect and if we were just to say be like them um, we would extrapolate from that some negative things if we were looking at some of their faults or some of their sins Um, we saw that especially last week when looking at Rachel and Leah or Leah and Rachel as I said you know that there is a lot of strife between them we're not meant to mirror that for example Um, and even that law of being like so and so being told to be like so-and-so paralyzes us because we say, well, how can I be like that in the good things? Telling me to be like that doesn't necessarily create in me the ability to be like that, right? So that's number one and number two. Um, The women in Scripture are for both men and women to learn from and to learn from God through their stories. And then secondly, um, their stories are so much more powerful than simply proclaiming the message, be like so-and-so. We're going to see a lot more of that today. We saw that in the last two weeks, first with Sarah. And remember that Sarah, the big point I left you with with Sarah, Sarah is barren, um, and yet she is proclaimed to be, by God, the mother of the promised offspring, the miraculous offspring that God promises to Abraham. It falls down to Genesis 17 when Abraham says, Oh, wouldn't you look with favor upon Ishmael, your servant? We had this other child, and would you bless him and let him be the child of promise? And the Lord says, No. Uh, my promise is going to be even more miraculous than that. And the promised child will have not only the father of faith, Abraham, but a mother of great faith, Sarah. Um, Even though Sarah is not perfect in her faith, neither is Abraham perfect in his faith. And yet God graciously grants them Isaac when they were dead in their own ability to bear children, when they were so old that it was completely impossible for them to bear children. Then the God of the resurrection brings about a child, brings about new life um, through the birth of Isaac. So the miraculous child, um, Sarah is the mother of all who believe, just like Abraham is the father of all who believe. And Paul talks about that in Galatians 4, that she is our mother not Hagar from um, the the land of slavery, but rather we are freed men and women by the grace of Jesus Christ. So Sarah, 
Then last week we looked at Leah and Rachel and looked at um, just different ways of being when we are in the midst of our own existential crisis, um, when we have longed for something, when we long for the one thing we don't have um, and we, we chase after it. Um, Leah and Rachel both are chasing after the one thing they don't have. Leah chases after Jacob's love. He hates her. It says in scripture that Leah was hated. And she bears all these children, but you can see her despair in the midst of it because the one thing she wants, the love of her husband, is the one thing she does not have. And then at the same time, on the flip side, Rachel, the one thing she wants is children. And she disdains the love of Jacob because she says, forget about you, why won't you give me children? And she's petitioning him for children. And it displays she doesn't understand the glory of God, that it is God who has made her barren and it is God who can make her fruitful. Um, And so you see that her relationship with her husband and her relationship with God both display um, this lack of trust and then this also effort to shake shake Jacob. Maybe the children will fall out. She is so trying to shake the heavens and get her desired result. She is trying to manipulate um, and in her machinations um, she does at some point receive what she wants but it's never enough. She is never happy. She is never satisfied and she dies in grief and sorrow. It's very sad. And yet you see the reflection with um, Leah. Leah finally has the son Judah. And that son finally you see by the names of her son. She sees that in that son his name simply means praise. No longer is she seeking and striving uh, to regain worth in her husband's eyes based on her ability to bear children. No longer is she saying, now he'll love me. Then he'll see and love me. Now he'll honor me. With Judah, she simply stops and she praises her maker because he has given her the ability to bear children. Even in the midst of her other griefs, she's able to stop and gratefully thank God for what um, she's been given. So there are those first two. A little recap from that. Any thoughts or questions, reflections from the last couple of weeks, if you've heard them online or if you were able to be here in person? Well, we're going on this week, we're looking at Hannah. And then when we come back, um, first week of November, I'll start looking at three New Testament women. So we've been looking at Old Testament women. We'll look at three New New Testament women starting in November. Well, Hannah, let's read. We're going to read about Hannah. Hannah is the mother of the great prophet Samuel. And Hannah is a woman of prayer. And we're going to see just how she is indeed a woman of prayer. So I'm going to read to you. It'll be up here on the screen too, so I'll... Stay out of the way, hopefully, so you can see. I'm going to read to you from Samuel, um, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. There was a certain man, uh, oh, I'm going to butcher all these names, so excuse me. Just get ready. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of, of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. 
Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? So the scene opens on Hannah. Hannah um, is the first wife of Elkanah, her husband. Um, And it appears as though Elkanah, who has this lineage that's um, put out very carefully, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, he has these important ancestors. And you get this picture, he has a great past, but he has no future because he has no sons from his beloved wife, Hannah. Hannah has no children, and so the implication is that in this day and age, polygamy was okay. Obviously, it's not. Um, but in this case, raising up children for the family in the people of, among the people of Israel was so important because it meant that that was the only way. If they, the, the only way they could retain their family inheritance of land was if they had sons to inherit it. And so on behalf of his whole family, on behalf of Hannah, even to preserve her in her old age, they need to have sons. And so Elkanah marries again, and Peninnah um, has lots of children. His second wife has lots of children, which shows that the barren one is not Elkanah. The problem really is Hannah. She is the one who is barren, who is unable to bear children. And for a woman in uh, the ancient Near East, and especially in, within ancient Israelite culture, there were lots of different Im- implications of this kind of barrenness on so many levels. Today, um, anyone who has ever struggled with infertility knows the heartache that accompanies it. But with Hannah, this was not just um, an emotional grief, but it also incorporated so many other aspects of her life. First of all, physically, any woman who didn't have children was um, almost guaranteed to be lacking in that nursing care that they would need once they grew old. Um, Women who lived longer than their husbands, if they didn't have any children to take care of them, they could not be assured that they would receive care. They would have to start really um, developing relationships with their neighbors and their nieces and nephews to see if someone would take care of them. So children, not only um, were they inheritors, but they also helped out their parents in their old age um, in very specific ways, not just in the way we do today, but very literally the children would help out the parents. Um, So she will have no nursing care in her old age, so there's a physical implication. There's the emotional longing, um, the desire to have that nearness, that closeness, that fellowship, that family um, that a lot of women and men long for, that desire to be in community and to have people that are associated with you, um, that are um, there to care for you, not just physically but also emotionally, um, to appease one's loneliness. She's lonely without children. Well then, secondly, there was this social status that was gained for women then and sometimes now. I don't know, you tell me, but um, I often will hear mothers talking about their children. Well, my child went to Harvard, my child went to Stanford, my child went, you know, there's a comparison. There's a sense of status that's conferred upon women based upon the achievements or the number of their children. Um, And I've often seen women doing this and uh, and for me, I may be more aware of it than other people because I'm at the bottom of the barrel. Zero children, so I'm like, I'm going to wait and have a different conversation with someone else. <laughs> but I've seen this play out, and I've seen women turn away feeling less than as a result of that. There's this. My acting teacher had this one 
symbol that he would always use to say um, whether or not you were getting up on stage and thinking you were better than other people. And he talked about it in terms of math, which helps me, in terms of fractions, if you're, or not fractions, but lesser than, greater than, very basic math. You remember it's a V either on one side or on the other side. And so if you got up there, I mean, we would get up and we would enact scenes or monologues, and then he would critique us which was very scary, always scary. You bear your heart and soul, and then he's going to critique you. And if he felt like you were getting up there with a scene partner and you had a T-shirt, you know that T-shirt, there's a horrible T-shirt that says, I'm with stupid. <laughs> Have you ever seen that T-shirt and it's an arrow pointing to whoever's next to you? It's such a degrading thing um, to have that sense of superiority. But in that T-shirt is making fun of it, thankfully. But so if we would get up front and, and enact a play or a scene or something like that, and if we were like, this is my scene partner, I'm better than him, or you know, vice versa, he would just call us right out on it. It's an intuitive thing that's very hard to tell, but he would say, you are doing this. You are thinking I'm greater than this person. Or if he thought that we were um, so embarrassed and so um, unable to even stand um, that we didn't think we were worthy to even get up there and act, then he would say, you're doing this. You're doing the less than thing. And it's a flip-flop back and forth. That little fraction, or that little lesser than, greater than sign just flips back so easily because it's a symptom of the same problem. Um, it's the symptom of finding our worth and our identity based on what we do rather than um, who we are or who God says we are. So he would talk about this lesser than, greater than. Well, that's definitely what's going on for Hannah socially and in relationship with this other woman, Peninnah. Peninnah has children, and even though she's not as loved by, her, by their husband, she has this great big greater than sign, and she feels so insecure that she's going to rub it in Hannah's face which makes Hannah feel already, you know, so much worse. She was already laboring under that sorrow emotionally, but having this rubbed in her face um, is so painful. So there are social implications. There are identity questions. Then finally, there's this question of spirituality. Within barrenness for women in that day and age, and could be anything in this day and age, if you experience suffering of any kind, and barrenness was the ultimate suffering a woman could experience in that day and age. If you experience any kind of suffering, you ask, why? Why, God? Why me? Isn't that the question? Isn't that the question that Job asks in the book of Job? Why me? And then the question that runs through our heads, and it's also the question that other people secretly ask in their own heads, what have I done? Or other people will say, what has he done? What has she done? They must have done something really bad if they're experiencing this suffering. Well, suffering, and scripture is so clear on this, Jesus is so clear on this, suffering is not as easy as an equation like that. Um, it's not a one-to-one -one ratio. We don't say, well, so-and-so's barren, therefore they must have sinned. But that was the idea around suffering that the Israelites had, the ancient Israelites had. And we see it definitely in Job's story. His three friends, who are not very good friends, come and say, wow, they sit with him for a long time, and then he's suffering, and then they say, what did you do? We know you must have done something. Stuff this bad doesn't happen to someone unless it's God's judgment. What did you do? 
So there's this sense of laboring under judgment. So for Hannah, she had this disfavor, this sense of being not favored by God, of maybe there's some kind of secret sin other people would whisper about and wonder about. Um, There was this sense that she was laboring under God's divine wrath. So that is her spiritual state here. It says she comes to, she is there, she is deeply distressed, she's afflicted, she's troubled in spirit, and she has even been provoked here to the point where she is weeping bitterly. And so then what does she do as she's weeping bitterly? She is at the lowest point she could possibly imagine. And what does she do? But she pours out her heart. She pours out her soul to the Lord out of her great anxiety and vexation. So after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. It was even worse while they were celebrating at this festival. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Eli is advanced in years. His sons have control of the worship at the tabernacle. And his sons are um, terrible, wicked even, is what um, the narrator tells us later on about them. They were so wicked that they got drunk there at the tabernacle. It would be equivalent to one of us clergy um, getting drunk off of the Lord's Supper, off of the wine at the Lord's Supper, and then encouraging other people to do so in this religious setting. Um, Then also, um, they were stealing the fat from the sacrifices. That would be equivalent to one of us clergy dipping through the um, offering plate, just pocketing it. And that's exactly what these priests were doing. And then worst case scenario shows the wickedness of their hearts. There were women who served in the tabernacle. And these two sons of Eli, they, it says that they, they lay with those women. They were committing sexual immorality at God's doorstep. And they were leading others astray terrible, horrible thing, and yet it's not something that we are um, totally unfamiliar with, unfortunately. The news bears witness to all sorts of um, wickedness, um, even in the hearts of God's ministers, unfortunately. We are not exempt from sin, and um, you see it very publicly um, proclaimed when someone, when a pastor falls in some way. So Eli is ancient. He is basically retired from active ministry, and he's, what, he's faithful, but he's watching his sons act so wickedly, and he, um, he is judged by God because he does nothing about it. But there he is, and he wonders if she has fallen under their sway. Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate 
and her face was no longer sad. Isn't that beautiful? Hannah takes all of her negative feelings, all of her sorrow and grief, her vexation, all those saddest and most broken places in her own heart, and she goes right to the Lord. She has that grace of being honest with God about it. She goes to him in prayer. She is like Jacob wrestling with God. Rather than walking away in her suffering and her sorrow, she enters in, she presses in, and she goes to prayer. Um, She um, is humble even in her suffering. Um, She um, also, like Job, Job shakes his fist at the heavens and says, Lord, what is going on? Come down and answer me. Help me. And even in his, his, it's said that he might be arrogant in that, but at least he's engaging with God. Hannah here, even in her distress, is engaging with God. And that is um, something, that is a word for us, that as we are at our lowest point, um, when we lean upon his mercy, um, that is very often displayed through prayer. Uh, The prayer that God loves to hear and that he is quick to answer is that prayer of help. And we have many ways of offering it. We can offer it in our own um, quiet hearts or um, that silent scream in our hearts, help. I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going to come next. We also can turn to um, our friends and our neighbors, our trusted brothers and sisters in Christ, and ask for their help in prayer. And that honesty um, is something that brings such great relief because we don't have to hide our hurt before certain people. Um, We might feel like we can't make it totally public, but there are safe ways to be honest about the suffering that we're going through. And I can't help but point out, especially with Kathy here, that the Advent House is a great resource um, for that kind of heart prayer, that kind of calling out in the midst of our distress and our need. Um, We provide that as a resource for people to come totally anonymously and to lay their prayer before these people. It's completely, it's not necessarily anonymous because they'll see you, but it's completely confidential. And that prayer itself, praying the prayer itself, brings relief. Doesn't it bring release for Hannah right here? She is relieved from her anxiety and vexation. She had no appetite. She was so sick to her stomach that she couldn't even eat. Now she can eat and she goes away. Her face is no longer sad. Well, so what happens then? What happens? We hear about in the next few verses, they go back home and um, in due time, Hannah conceives and bears a son, and she calls his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And that that name, I have asked for him, sounds like heard of the Lord. Names for the ancient Israelites were so important. They designated some kind of aspect about the child's character or about the events that brought about the child's birth. So this child is called God has heard, heard of God, because God heard Hannah's petition. He heard her in her sorrow, in her grief, in her humility. Um, uh, There's this great, this is terrible that I'm going to use this um, analogy, but um, one of the movies that I've seen time and time again is Star Wars. Um, if you've ever seen the first Star Wars trilogy, and there's there's a new movie out that gets a lot of good ratings that's called um, Guardians of the Galaxy, and it's like a comic book movie, and it's really fun, right? I don't know if you've seen it. 
very fun and there are great space battles, which is one of the great things about Star Wars, but it lacks in all of its glamour, it lacks some of that pure simplicity of Star Wars. So I'm still a Star Wars fan, even though there are other new attempts to improve on space battles, etc. But one of the great moments, and it's one of those, I get things stuck in my head. I get songs stuck in my head. I get phrases stuck in my head. I get the liturgy stuck in my head, which is a great thing to get stuck in your head. Have those prayers going throughout your head. Well, one of the things that I get stuck in my head <laughs> is, um, you know how they keep repeating um, that, that hologram of Princess Leia that gets get stuck in R2-D2, remember? And um, is it Luke that sees it or is it Han that sees it first? can't remember. It's Luke that sees it first. See, I'm a Star, Star Wars fan, but I forget all the details. But I remember, I'll never forget, you know, the hologram, especially seeing it the first time and you don't know who this person is and you're wondering, what is this about? And she says, help me, Obi-Wan. You're my only hope. And she says it again and again and again. Help me, Obi-Wan. You're my only hope. Help me, Obi-Wan. You're my only hope. Exactly like that. Sorry. I'll keep going. Now do you have it in your head? <laughs> but this is like Hannah's prayer. Help me, Lord. You are my only hope. And when we get to the end of our rope, when we are in our deepest distress, we are so humbled by it and we realize, I have no resources to be able to fix my situation. I am out of, it is out of my control. Um, very often as we get towards that bottom of the pit, as we approach it, we think, well, if I do this, it'll get better. If I do this, it'll get better. If I just do this, it'll get better. And we think that we can manage all these disparate elements. And when each one of those um, second to last hopes um, fail us, finally we find ourselves at that place where we say, help me, Lord, you are my only hope. Well, there is Hannah at the bottom of um, her own resources, completely humbled, completely without hope other than the Lord. Help me, you are my only hope. And um, there's some great, I'm going to read to you this wonderful passage, and hopefully you can listen to it without, um, I didn't put it up there, unfortunately. Well, it's talking about Yahweh, who is God, and what is his, um, what is his, what is his character like? Um, when we hear this, he hears this cry, why does he respond? Why does he answer? Well, Yahweh is the one who has the power to transform and the willingness to intervene on behalf of the powerless. Both qualities are required. First, the power to transform. Because the power to transform without the willingness to intervene ends in a haughty transcendence. So good. The power to transform without the willingness to intervene ends in a haughty transcendence. God, Lord Most High, Sovereign God, but who doesn't really care what's going on in my life. So the, um, the, the two are totally necessary. The first is definitely there. God in his sovereignty has the power to transform. Second, secondly, um, if there was the willingness to intervene without the power to transform, that ends only in a pitiful sentimentality. This is terrible, but when people say to me, I love you, and I think, you don't know me. Just you wait. If you really knew me, let's wait and see. Wait and see till you really know me. And then if you can still say that, I'll believe you. But there is a nice, nice sentimentality um, that's positive without acknowledging some of the negative things realistically that occur in our life or some of the negative things that we are the author of in our own lives. Um, and that nice, nice um, love, love, 
Um, I've often heard Heidi Kinner refer to it as fluffy bunny Jesus. I'll be with you. I'll be right there by your side, your buddy. Um, my brother has all of these um, statues of Jesus that he collects because he thinks that they're so funny. Um, and they're sort of funny, but they're also, they make me want to cry too at the same time. He has these Jesus kitsch statues. My brother's also a priest. And they're lit- they litter his office. Um, and they're pictures, they're little statues of Jesus doing everyday things. And they're meant to make you have a big um, lump in your throat. Oh, it's so sweet. There's Jesus riding a skateboard. There's Jesus playing softball with a little boy, and that little boy is going to know Jesus because Jesus is playing softball with him. It's akin to the precious moments, big eyes, sweet soulfulness, um, and yet where is the transcendent power to transform? Jesus is with us, God with us, Emmanuel. But unless he's also God for us, breaking in from outside our circumstances to transform, that Jesus with us is not enough. It's not enough to know that he undergoes our suffering with us. We need to know that he has the power to change our situation. So he says, um, Yahweh is neither haughty nor pitiful, but possesses, as no other, the combination of qualities and inclinations that matter to those who are in their deepest distress. God himself is both near and far. He is transcendent in all of his sovereignty, and he is near to us even in the midst of our suffering, near to us and able to transform our situation. So that is what happens for Hannah. God transforms her situation um, miraculously. God brings life out of death. This is the God of the resurrection at work long before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here is a hint of what God will do through Jesus because he opens up her dead womb. He brings life where there was only death. Um, And so they're so glad about this child. And remember, uh uh-oh, remember what Hannah said. Hannah had made a vow. When she was praying, she vowed under her breath, If you look and remember your servant and will give me a son, then I will give him to the Lord. She promises God that she will give um, her son, that he will give to her, back to God for his whole life. She makes what's called a Nazarite vow from Numbers 6, 1 through 21. Other characters in scripture who are vowed to be in God's service from before their birth include Samson or Jeremiah and then, of course, Jesus. This Samuel is going to be used by God. She gives him right back up to the Lord. And when she brings him back to Shiloh, back to the tabernacle, they bring the child to Eli, and she, she reminds Eli of who she is so that he too can give glory to God for his faithfulness to her. And she then makes this ultimate sacrifice. But it's a sacrifice not out of fear. Um, if I don't do this, God will take away the blessing he's given me. It's not out of compulsion, but it is with joy and gladness. And we're going to see how it's with joy and gladness because of her song, which she sings in chapter 2. But she says... I prayed for this child. The Lord has granted me my petition. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. She gives up her most precious, most precious, most prized 
and sought-after thing, which is actually a person, to God in thanksgiving and with glad gratitude. Can you think of any other biblical stories where this is the case? Where some long-promised child is um, requested back by God and given back to God in an act of great faith? Abraham and Isaac. Remember that God asked Abraham to bring Isaac, the child of promise, up and sacrifice him to him on that mountain. And Abraham doesn't seem to ask any questions. He just goes. And by going, what he demonstrates, and I love the commentators that say this about Abraham, is that he believes in the God of the resurrection. He believes that God can raise Isaac from the dead. God has given him Isaac in the midst of their um, near death And so he can absolutely raise him from the dead. It's an act of great faith. So too, here with Hannah, she is acting in great faith. And she's given that faith by God himself. She gives gives him to the Lord. And it says later on that um, she has more children. Samuel was just the first. She gave him to the Lord, though, before she knew she would have more children. Then the Lord blesses her with five more children. Um, She is blessed. And so this song of hers comes out of, that, um, out of that salvation. On the other side of salvation, she sings this song, this hymn, this prayer of praise. So not only did she pray and petition the Lord um, in the midst of her deepest distress, but she doesn't forget about him. Um, afterwards, on the other side of her salvation, she comes before the Lord and she rejoices. She says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. It's almost like she's saying that to Peninnah, right? For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the, Lord, of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Does that, as you hear that song, that prayer of thanksgiving of Hannah's, do you, does it echo at all in your ears? Do you hear some of the echoes throughout scripture of this prayer? What thoughts do you have as you read that or as you hear it? I know it's hard to see from where you are probably. Mary, I know, Mary echoes Hannah's words here. Um, And we're going to see that in a couple of weeks when we look at Mary in November.